Hello and welcome to episode 115 of the New Ice City podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercagliano of the USA Today Network, and we have a lot to discuss on this week's episode. We're going to have a special guest to help us go over this year's Rangers draft class in Chris Peters from flowhockey.tv. You guys know Chris. He's been on the show a few times. Definitely one of my favorite prospect experts out there. So we're going to do a pretty in-depth draft recap with him coming up in just a little bit. Rangers development camp just ended. I spent each of the past four days watching this year's round of prospects, which included the draft class, but also had a handful of other guys that I know you all are probably interested in. So at some point, I want to get into giving you my impressions from development camp. But I want to start with all of the free agency activity because we have not talked since then. The previous episode came out late last week. Free agency happened on Saturday. Then development camp started. So this is really my first chance to sit down and talk about everything that happened with you guys. So let's dive into what turned out to be quite a busy day for Chris Drury and the New York Rangers on Saturday, July 1st, which was the opening of the free agency signing period. The Rangers end up with 10 signings in total. Now, they could still add to that, but I think the heavy lifting is done. The Rangers signed about eight of those players in less than three hours as soon as free agency opened. It was like one text after another I kept getting. And then they added, you know, one more signing later in the day and then one more on on Sunday. But it's been quiet since then for the last few days. Of those 10 signings, there are five who I think are definitely going to make the NHL roster. That would be Blake Wheeler, Nick Bonino, Tyler Pitlick among the forwards, Eric Gustafson, a defenseman who the Rangers signed, who I definitely want to talk about a little bit, and Jonathan Quick, who will be the backup goalie to Igor Shesterkin. So you have those five guys who I think are, if not guaranteed, then at least very, very likely to make the Rangers roster this coming season. And then they had a handful of other depth signings. It's very possible that a guy like Alec Belize or Riley Nash ends up making the team as maybe like a 13th forward kind of a thing. But I think that the five that I mentioned, Wheeler, Benino, Pitlick, Quick, and Gustafson are almost surely going to be on that opening night roster. And I think as far as the three forwards and Gustafson, the defensemen go, those guys will most likely be in the lineup. The big key here, before we start dissecting the individual signings and talk about what some of these guys are going to bring to the table, is that none of these contracts came in for a higher average annual value than 825000 The five NHL guys that we talked about, all of them are one-way contracts on one-year deals. So extremely discount kind of shopping here from the Rangers. The league minimum for salary is $775,000 for this coming season, and none of the guys that they signed made more 50000 more than that. 
So that was the max that they gave any of these contracts out. Extreme bargain shopping here for Chris Drury and the Rangers. You can look at these signings and you can reasonably question how much better this makes the team. It certainly makes them better. They had all these holes to fill, and in large part, they filled all of the holes. Now, are all of these guys going to be super effective at this stage of their career? Well, that's something that we're going to have to watch and see and that we can certainly discuss a bit here. No doubt about it, the median age of this roster has certainly gone up. They're going to be relying on some guys who are past their primes, in some cases maybe well past their primes, and hoping that they can find a fountain of youth or at least find a way to help this roster. You look in particular at Wheeler, Benino, and Quick. Highly accomplished players. Benino's won a couple Stanley Cups. Wheeler's been a big-time point producer. Jonathan Quick, one of the best goalies of his generation. But how much do these guys have left in the tank? All three of those guys are 35 or older. So listen, certainly when we talk about getting older, that's a concern. And when we've talked repeatedly about team speed and the Rangers looking like they were a step behind the Devils in the playoffs and and feeling like they needed to get faster, well, I don't know if too many of these signings are going to help them in that department. And that is a legitimate concern and a legitimate question moving forward. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that they solved all of their problems in one shot or in one day. But given the cap circumstances, I do find it very hard to be critical here. They basically, from what I understand, checked in with an endless list of free agents. I think they put feelers out there in a lot of different places and basically were straight up with the guys that they checked in with by saying, we are cap strapped. We don't have much money to spend. So if your player or your free agent is willing to sign near the league minimum, now in certain cases with the 35 and older guys like Wheeler and Quick, they're able to work performance bonuses into the contract. And I think I talked about this a little bit last week, but the key for those 35 and older guys is that you're allowed to put performance bonuses in that contract And you can make those bonuses fairly easy for these guys to achieve if they hit those bonuses during the season. They will count against the salary cap. But the key is, if you don't have enough salary cap space to pay those bonuses in full, the excess will roll over and count against your cap for the following season. Meanwhile, you're still able to keep those players on the roster. So it's a little bit of wiggle room a little bit of a a loophole, and they were able to do that with Wheeler and Quick, although they didn't give either one of them massive performance bonuses. Wheeler got an extra 300,000, Quick got an extra 100,000. So they're not necessarily breaking the bank or jeopardizing their future cap space by a whole lot here, but they were able to use those in certain situations. But the gist of it is, I think they had to go around to all these different free agents and say, look, we know your client can probably get more or maximize his value more on the open market if he goes elsewhere. But we're trying to build a winner here. We feel like we have a lot of really good players in place. And if your player wants to be a part of this, we'd love to have him. He's just going to have to meet us on our terms. And they ended up hitting on some guys. They ended up finding some guys that were willing to take a discount to come here. And especially in the case of a guy like Wheeler and Quick, 
Those guys seemed like they really, really wanted to be here. Quick, the story goes, grew up in Connecticut as a big-time Rangers fan. So they put a lot of feelers out. I'm sure got a lot of no's. They definitely got a lot of no's. But there were some guys who were willing to take less to play for the Rangers. And in the case of a guy like Wheeler, it certainly helps that he was recently bought out by the Winnipeg Jets, who are going to be paying him $2.75 million this year to not play for them. So you factor in his $800,000 contract with the $300,000 signing bonus. And in total, the guy's probably going to make about $4 million this coming season. So it definitely helped to look at these guys that were recently bought out and say, hey, we know you're making money from your former team, so maybe you can afford to take a little bit less from us. But the reality is they weren't going to be able to afford even some of these low contracts that you saw given out. And there were a lot of them, a lot of one-year deals because players are expecting the salary cap to go up next season, so they want to hit the market again at this time next year. But even some of these contracts where it was 1.2, 1.3, 1.4 million dollars. Even that would have been a big stretch for the Rangers because remember, they needed to have enough money left over to give new contracts to Alexi Lafreniere and Keandre Miller. Even as they gave out these contracts with none being more than eight hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, they're still left with, by my projection about 6.9 or so, a little under $7 million in available cap space. And the entirety of that money is going to have to go to these new deals for Lafreniere and Miller. And even that is going to be a squeeze. I think they've put themselves in a position where it's doable, but it's still going to be tight because we've talked about this before. I think Keandre Miller ideally would like to get a $5 million a year contract. But if you give him five, That only leaves you with about 1.9 for Alexi Lafreniere, and that's certainly not going to do it. So they're going to need Keandre to be closer to four. They could, you know, then afford to give Alexi Lafreniere more like 2.5, and that would basically eat up the remainder of their cap space. So if they went to one of these other free agents that you might be looking at and gave them, let's say, $1.2 million, well, that would have dropped that 6.9 number that we're talking about to more like 6.5. And then you're even tighter as far as what you're looking at to give Lafreniere and Miller. And I quite frankly don't think that that would have been enough to do it. So considering all that, uh, it's hard for me not to view this past week as a success. Again, the age concerns are still there. The speed concerns are still there. This is not a perfect free agent class by any stretch of the imagination. But Drury had to shop in that for sale rack that you find in the back of the store that never has anything good in your size. Yet somehow he found a way to pull a full wardrobe together and pretty much fill all their needs. The Rangers needed a right winger who could play in the top six. Now, we're going to find out if Wheeler is still capable of that, but he's certainly been that for the majority of his career. They were able to land him. They needed some pieces to to plug holes in their bottom six. They go out and they get Bonino and they get Pitlick. They needed a left-handed defenseman to play on their bottom pair. They go out and they get Gustafson. They needed a backup goalie who they felt like was experienced and could play in a pinch if anything happens with Igor. They get Jonathan Quick, who, again, 
one of the greatest goalies in the last 20 years in the NHL. So they're able to fill these needs all while basically giving these guys a lot less, especially in a case like Wheeler, I think, than they probably could have gotten had they just looked to get the biggest contract that was out there for them. So this was the reality of their situation. This was the spot that they found themselves in. And given that, again, I think it's hard to quibble with this. I think it's hard to really be critical. I think they did very well for themselves, quite honestly, better than I thought they were going to be able to do given the constraints that they had. Now, we can certainly look at how they got to this point and find some more spots to be more critical than we're I'm going to be about the free agent class. We can definitely look at some of the big contracts that Jeff Gordon put on the books before he got out of here. Although I think in each of those cases, it was pretty much widely praised when he made the deal. Now, in retrospect, you can ask some questions about it. But when he went out and gave that big contract to Artemi Panarin, that was viewed as a slam dunk. And I still think there's an argument that he's the greatest free agent signing in Rangers history. The playoff struggles have been apparent. That's been a real issue. But regular season, this guy's been awesome for the Rangers. So the Panarin contract was one that Gorton gave out. The deal for Jacob Truba, now $8 million, looks like a lot of money to spend on a player like that. But at the time, the Rangers had a glaring need on the right side of their defense. And that, again, was a trade that was widely praised when they pulled it off. Gorton also gives the extension to Chris Kreider, who, listen, at the time, had they known that COVID was going to hit and there was going to be a flat cap for a couple of years afterwards, I think there would have been more hesitation. But Kreider's also a guy that since he signed that contract has a 50-goal season on his resume. So while you look at those three contracts, Panarin, Truba, and Kreider, and say, we're probably paying more than we would ideally like to for those guys, I think at the time, they all felt like moves that were pretty solid moves. Then you look at what Chris Drury has done since he took over as general manager. The three big extensions that he gave out were Igor Shosturkin, Adam Fox, and Mika Zabanajad. And I think all three of those guys are really, really important players on this team. Probably the three most important players on this team, I would argue. So you look at those deals, especially the Igor deal, which is like a steal right now, $5.6 million for a Vesna Trophy winner. Those contracts, I think it's hard to criticize any of those either. What's more possible is that we end up looking back at the seven-year deal that Drury gave Vincent Trocek or the six-year deal that Drury gave Barclay Goudreau and maybe regretting those a little bit. There was a clear need for a center when they went out and got Trocek. So at the time, it seemed like he was the best option that fit in their price range. But that was really the last big deal that Chris Drury was going to be able to give out as far as a free agent kind of signing. And the Goudreau thing, listen, I think a lot of people were curious if they were going to be looking to find a way to move that contract. I don't think the trade market is what they would like it to be for him. And they chose not to go the buyout route. They may come to regret those contracts. They may be regretting those contracts right now. But this is the bed that Chris Drury made. And again, given all that, I think going out and making all these low-risk one-year deals like he did was the best-case scenario for this free agent class. 
None of these deals that they gave out in the past week are going to hamper them moving forward. None of these deals that they gave out are going to have a major impact on their salary cap situation. These are all deals that are short term, that aren't going to hurt you moving forward, and that seem like risks worth taking given the price tag, the incredibly low price tag that he got on all of these guys. I think this was pretty close to a best case scenario given what we know their cap situation is right now. I'm sure there are some of you who wanted Tyler Bertuzzi or Jesper Faust or Garnett Hathaway, but unless they were willing to take the kind of contract that a guy like Wheeler got, it wasn't going to happen. They weren't going to be able to go much higher than the league minimum with anybody that they signed. Now, speaking of Wheeler, let's start to dissect a little bit of these players that the Rangers are bringing in. Wheeler, to me, is the most important signing and potentially the most impactful signing of the guys that the Rangers got. And that is quite simply because, as we've discussed before, when you look at their right-wing depth chart, there was nothing other than Capo Caco coming back. You've got a couple guys like Goudreau or Jimmy VC who could play on the right side in a pinch if you need it. I think some people still wonder if maybe Philip Heedle ends up there, but... The preference is to keep Heedle in the middle and probably keep Goudreau in the bottom six. And so you needed a guy that you felt comfortable playing in the top six, a, a true right winger. And the Rangers get that in Wheeler. Now, as far as athletically and physically where he's at at this point in his career, people that I've spoken to definitely believe that he's lost a step. He is not a burner. He is not going to be a guy who helps the Rangers become a faster team, but he is a proven offensive producer who certainly, I think, can play with some of the Rangers' top players and put up some points. He had 55 points in 72 games last year, so still pretty good production from him. And this is a guy who's basically been a point-per-game player for most of his career. And interestingly, while I think it's fair to say the guy's about to be 37 years old for the next season, He's lost a step. If you look at his analytics from last season, he had his best numbers in pretty much every category in the last five years last season. So the metrics actually were kind of encouraging, not so much the last couple of years before this season, but if you look at the 22-23 season, Wheeler took a step up in a lot of those analytical categories. So very curious to see what they're going to get from him. You know the guy is skilled. You know he can put up points. You know he's a big body, six foot five, 220 pounds. So as far as getting inside or handling the physicality of the playoffs, you feel pretty confident he can do those things. Now, defensively, I don't think he's what he was. I certainly don't think he's going to be a guy that they rely on on the penalty kill. But he's been a productive power play guy. I could very easily see him carving out a role for himself, maybe even on that top power play unit. You know you're going to have Kreider, Panarin, Zabanajad and Fox, but I think Wheeler maybe could work his way in as that fifth guy. And I think that there are qualities to like here. And again, for an $800,000 salary, I don't think you were going to be able to find any other 55-point scorer like Wheeler. So there are flaws in the game, no doubt about it. But given the price tag that you got him at, I think this is a really quality signing for the Rangers, and this gives them a guy that, at least from the beginning, you can pencil into your top six and hope for the best. Now, 
If he really looks like he's aged and he really looks like he can't keep up, you're going to have to reevaluate that plan. But he is certainly better than any of the other options the Rangers had. I fully expect Wheeler and Capo Caco to be the top two right wingers on this depth chart as we get into training camp. Jonathan Quick, he's not going to have to play a huge role unless Igor gets hurt. Then we're really going to find out how much he has left in the tank. Last season with L.A. was not good. His save percentage was like 876, I believe. Now, he was a little bit better in Vegas, and I'm very curious with him to see how does a guy who was a starter for pretty much his whole career, a star-level goalie for like 15 years with the Kings, how does he adapt to the less frequent playing time? Is he able to make the adjustments? Is he able to find ways to stay sharp even though he's not going to be playing anywhere near as often as he's accustomed to playing? I asked him that on our Zoom call the other day. He thought that his time in Vegas in the second half of the season helped him get a jump start on that and helped him start sort of flipping his mindset to the backup kind of a role. So it's going to be interesting to see how he handles that. But the big key for him is – If something happens to Igor, can you rely on this guy? And I think the Rangers are more comfortable having an experienced guy like that, who certainly is on the back end of his career. But I think they were more comfortable clearly with a guy like that than they would have been with Louis Domingue, who I think was the other option. Louis Domingue now goes to the third string role, should be back with Hartford, along with Dylan Garand, who is their top goalie prospect. Now, a couple other guys I want to quickly touch on here before we get to our interview with Chris Peters. Benino, I mean, traditionally in his career, this has been an ideal fourth line type of player. Won two cups with Pittsburgh, kills penalties, excellent defensive numbers. You look at his numbers even last season with the San Jose Sharks. He grays out in a lot of analytical categories as the best defensive forward for the Sharks last season. So a guy who can certainly play an effective fourth line center role, which is what Chris Jury said he expects him to do in New York. Question again with him, 35 years old now. How much does he have left? But last season, the numbers are pretty solid. This isn't going to be a big point producer, but he's definitely going to fill a role for you on that fourth line. And I also think that Tyler Pitlick is going to play on that fourth line. Chris Drury called him a true right winger, so that goes to show you that they view him as another guy who's going to help fill in that right wing depth chart. And I think that you could very easily envision a fourth line with Benino and Pitlick on it. And Pitlick is a guy that my understanding, at least from talking to a few people, does bring some pretty good skating and can play with some speed and is a really good four checker and will bring some of those elements that we feel like the Rangers need more of. So I think him more than any of these signings, when you talk about getting under the opponent's skin, when you talk about being aggressive on the four check, I think that's going to be the role that the Rangers ask him to play. Also another guy that I think could work in on the PK, but then... I think maybe the the sneakiest signing, and in a lot of ways, you know, we talked about Wheeler probably being the most impactful. He's certainly the headliner here. But Gustafson is a guy that, big point producer, I think he had 40-something points combined last season between his time with the Capitals and his time with the Maple Leafs, and is familiar with Peter Laviolette's system because he played for him in Washington, and he thrived in that system. The metrics paint him out. Now, I'm not saying he was the Capitals' best defenseman, but the metrics paint him out as Washington's best defenseman last year. His analytics were the best of any defenseman on that team. He had a bit of a resurgence 
last season while playing for LaViolette. And you know that LaViolette advocated for him to come here. So he slots in now as a left-handed defenseman on that bottom pair with Braden Schneider. And I think he brings different elements than a guy like Nico Mikola or some of the other players that we've seen the Rangers try in that role. Not quite as physical, probably not as good defensively. Certainly, I don't think as good defensively as Mikola, but a puck mover. This is a guy who's good with the puck on his stick, who can chip in some points, and I think will help the Rangers with some of their zone exit issues and will help them advance the puck up the ice once they get possession back. So I like the idea of going with a guy who's a little bit more of a puck mover, but also has some size and some length and things like that, you know, decent mobility. So I think in that left-handed role, you're going to have Braden Schneider as more of your kind of stay-at-home guy, and Gustafson is going to be a guy who can maybe push forward. I could very easily see him quarterbacking the second power play unit. So I think that was a sneaky good signing for the Rangers, and I think that he's certainly the favorite now to play on the bottom pair. Although I will tell you this, that I got this from from a good source. I asked around about this a bit. The plan for the Rangers, I think, barring something completely unforeseen, is that Gustafson and Zach Jones are both going to make this roster. Zach Jones is now in the situation where we saw Vitaly Kratsov last year, where because he's no longer on his entry-level contract, And he's at the eligibility phase now where if you want to send him to the minors, he would have to clear waivers. The Rangers aren't going to roll the dice on that. He's still their best defenseman prospect. He's not a guy they're willing to sacrifice for nothing. So it's possible he could be traded. I I certainly would not rule that out. But if he's still on the team, I expect him to break camp with the Rangers. It would probably be in that role as a seventh defenseman. Maybe they pick their spots to work him into the lineup and get him some playing time. But I don't think you're going to see that guy sent to Hartford because the Rangers simply aren't going to want to risk putting him on waivers. So I think signing Gustafson sort of solidifies what these seven defensemen are probably going to look like coming out of camp with Jones also very likely to make the team from my understanding. So that's where the Rangers are at right now as far as these free agent signings. Again, Wheeler, Quick, Bonino, Gustafson and Pitlick are all very likely to make this roster. And to get all those guys, with none of them making more than 825000 to be able to fill that many holes for that little amount of money, that's some pretty good business right there from the Rangers, given the difficult situation that they were in. All right. I've been talking about the free agent stuff long enough. Honestly, I talked about that, I think, longer than I expected, but Hope you guys enjoyed it. Had a lot of stuff I wanted to say there. But now I want to talk some NHL draft. So let's get to our interview with Chris Peters. And then I'll be back following that interview to answer a handful of your Twitter questions. Now let's welcome in one of our favorite guests to talk about prospects with. Specifically, we're going to pick his brain about this year's New York Rangers draft class, and that would be Chris Peters. You guys know him from ESPN, Daily Faceoff, and most recently, he's been doing some really excellent work. I've been loving reading your stuff, Chris, with FlowHockey.tv. So thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's a crazy few weeks. I know you're getting ready to go on a well-deserved vacation, but we appreciate you squeezing us in today. Oh, my, my pleasure, Vince. This is great. You know, I, I, I'm happy to, to, to tie a bow on this draft class. You know, we've been talking about it all year. 
Uh, but now we finally kind of get to wrap it up and and it's nice because now we get to close the chapter and then in about uh, three weeks, I'll be right back at it for the 2024 draft. Can't wait. Yeah, I'm gonna wait a little while before I start thinking about that, but I know I know that's your thing, so I'll, I'll definitely uh, I'll definitely rely on you when the time comes for it. But I, I want to start in the obvious spot. The, the Rangers only had five picks in this year's draft. It wasn't like they were loading up, but they had a first round pick, which they didn't have last season. So I know a lot of fans were really excited about that. And you know when they made that trade for Vlad Tarasenko, I know it was important for them to hold on to the higher of the two picks. So they end up at number 23, and and a lot of people felt like with the depth of this year's draft class, especially how strong it was up top, that you probably would be able to find a pretty talented player in the range where they were at. And as the, the first round is unfolding, you know, when I was writing and talking to people about who might be available for the Rangers, you're talking about guys like Calum Ritchie, I believe uh, Charlie Strammel was a guy that I spoke to you about, uh, Edstrom, you know, there were some center prospects in there that you felt like might be available at 23. Guys that I thought weren't going to be available, just based on people I had spoken with and, and reading various rankings like yours, Gabe Perot is falling, and Oliver Moore was also falling. And I thought Moore, if he made it to 23, because he's a center who skates so well, would have been an ideal fit for the Rangers. Now, the Blackhawks snag him at 19, but Perot lasting as long as he did to 23. I believe you had him ranked in your top 12. I know a lot of people that I, I read had him ranked that high as well. Were you surprised about him falling the way that he did? Or do you think that because of the line that he played on, maybe some of the questions about his skating and physical traits and people maybe feeling like, you know, he had these inflated numbers because he played with two guys in Will Smith and Ryan Leonard who were top eight draft picks. Were Did you think that maybe that is what caused him to slip or did you still think that you were surprised that he made it that far? Um, I, I am surprised that he went, Outside of the top 20, for sure. Like, I'm definitely surprised about that. I'm not necessarily surprised that he was going to drop because the same kind of things you heard all year, you know, the skating is is closer to average, Um, you know, maybe even a little bit below. I think it has improved enough to at least get to an average level. Um, You know, the the just sometimes his game can lack intensity and sometimes, you know, he's also not as physically developed. So what we saw in the first round was that size did become a bigger factor. We saw guys like Zach Benson, like Perot, um, like Braden Yeager, you know, kind of slip a little bit further down, um, you know, Andrew Crystal going outside of the first round. Like, so, so size was a factor that allowed him to kind of drop a little bit, but you know, the, the thing is, is that what, to me, the production was not a fluke. It wasn't just a product of playing with great players because he was the leading scorer on that line. He was the guy that broke the record, and um, you don't do that by mistake. And when Will Smith was out, or when Ryan Leonard, um, you know, wasn't available, you know, there was like there weren't very many games where that was the case. But you know, he still produced. Like Gabe still produced at a high level because really he could play with anybody and make them better. Um, and so the, it was it was interesting to see him fall that far. But because he's not a big guy, because he's not as physically developed, because there's a little bit more like it wasn't necessarily a shock. Um, but I still think that he went lower than he should have gone. I think there were teams that liked him better, but they still went with size. You know, I think you you, you mentioned Charlie Stramel. That was a guy that I think went higher than most people expected him to go in the first round. You know, David Edstrom ends up lasting to the last pick in the first round. But, you know, I think there were still a lot of guys that, that were bigger players. We saw a lot of defensemen go a little bit earlier than maybe we were expecting them to go as well. 
So that also kind of pushes guys down. And, you know, when you get into these things where guys slip, there's always the chance that they were the next guy on the board, but the other guy was there and he was the, so, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing when the picks actually start falling, how fast they go. And then all of a sudden you're like, Whoa, he hasn't gone yet. This guy hasn't gone yet. Um, It's just the, the nature of the draft board. But I think, if you're the New York Rangers and you have one of the best offensive players, the the second most productive player in the entire draft class next to Connor Bedard, fall in your lap at 23, that's an easy decision to make. It's, I mean, you know, you say, okay, well, the size might not be to the skating, but this is a guy that thinks the game at an exceptionally high level. He's, uh, you know, he plays a great playmaker. You put him with finishers. He has a good shot, too. I mean, he's actually can score. He scored over 50 goals this year, yeah. so it's not like he can't score, but he's he's a he's such a good passer like he's one of the best passers in this draft you know you put him with a guy that's going to finish he's going to make him better and you know i i think also the the other good thing about gay pro is the development path that he's on now he's going to go to boston college he's going to play with the same guys he's been playing with which is fine you know they already have that built-in chemistry but he's gonna get stronger there he's gonna get challenged he's gonna have to play uh, a different way every now and again um you know it'll probably be a couple of years but now you've also you've got that set path for him where you can watch him closely, you can have a lot of contact with him. There's all sorts of things that you can do that makes this a really good fit organizationally um, on top of just him being a really good player. You know, John Lilly, the the new you know director of scouting and all that for the Rangers, he made a comment where he said when they watched the development program games and he was on that line with Smith and Leonard that – each game, it seemed like a different guy was driving that line. Yes. And all three were very capable of driving that line. So he was kind of making the argument that he was just as responsible for the success of that line as the other two guys. And one thing that you touched on that a lot of people say, and I'm, I'm wondering if you can elaborate or maybe even have examples to give the fans, is when you talk about the high level in which he thinks the game. You know, that is something that you can't necessarily measure at the combine. You know, it's not going to show up when in a skating test or a, a weightlifting test or anything like that. But can you kind of maybe elaborate to, for people when you when you say that? Like, what do you mean? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so in terms of how Gabe thinks the game, like I think his offensive capabilities are all driven by his hockey sense. And it's how he reads plays. It's how he anticipates. It's how he sees the, the plays developing. It's how he sees kind of how the defense is set up, where his line mates are. I think towards the end of that season, there was such an automatic nature to him and Will Smith connecting and him and Ryan Leonard connecting. And they, there were, there were a number of plays at the world under 18 championship this year where they just completely fooled everybody with what they were doing. And in Gabe, there's one pass in particular that I, I think about often when I think about the way that Gabe Perot not only thinks the game, but executes as well. And it was basically a play where he was going one direction. He The backhand pass for him was cut off. So he had to come around his body. And instead of doing a full turn, the stick kind of went and the rest of his body didn't really go with him. And he still was able to put a pass right on the tape to Will Smith, who was cutting in to the zone. He 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 sensed the play coming. He got the pressure. He absorbed the pressure and then put the puck in a position where the defender couldn't do anything about it. And it was right on Will Smith's tape and it leads to a scoring chance. And those are the types of plays that he makes regularly. I mean, this is every game that he does this where you're not going to have as and, and I completely agree with John Lilly on that because I thought the same thing. You could watch a game in the USHL or college and, and one of them was going better than the other two, but they 
and that other whoever was going was dragging those other guys with them and not they had to drag them very far because they're really talented players but they were able to kind of pull them on and i think that a lot of times in this season especially in the second half of the season you saw gabe perot being more and more of a driver i mean how many four and five point games did he have this season where he was just setting guys up and putting it on a tee and you know an automatic power play I mean, it really was the best line in junior hockey and maybe one of the best line. I mean, it, to me, it was the best line in the history of the NTDP. And they had a line that had both Austin Matthews and Matthew Kachuk on it. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, that is that is in terms of production, we've never seen anything like this. And it doesn't happen without the guys like Gabe Perot and Will Smith are two of the elite hockey sense guys in this draft and then you've got one of the great finishers in ryan leonard who also could drive play like it was it was a it was a sight to behold i mean and john Lilly would know as well as anybody having been at the program you know earlier in his career and you know what these guys were doing is not common it's not something that you see all the time and the numbers that gabe perot put up 132 points you know beating austin matthews by 15 points that didn't happen by accident. It really didn't. Um, he wasn't getting cheap points. He was really being a, a top end guy and 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 just executing at all times. The, the crazy thing is, at BC, they could keep that line intact, which would be really fun mm-hmm. to watch if it ends up happening. At development, oh, at, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling it will too. At development camp, you know, Perot, I think, especially in the scrimmage setting where things were ramped up physically and you got some, you know, undrafted guys trying to make an impression and sort of yep. really ramping it up. I, I thought, you know, in there, he was a little bit unsure at times. And he even said afterwards, this was a wake up call about how much bigger and stronger I need to get. But in a lot of those drills where there was quick decision making and you had to make passes into small areas. He was by far one of the standouts in that setting. The passing is what stood out to me, I think, at development camp more than anything. But what's interesting now, and I've mentioned this to you previously, we're working as we do every year on our annual organizational prospect rankings. Now, Brennan Othman was our number one last year. But as I've been talking to people in preliminary discussions so far to get a feel for where we're at, there is a debate now between Othman and Perot. And I noticed that you wrote, I believe, in the last handful of days about the teams that you think have a new number one prospect overall in their organization. And you had Perot as the number one guy for the Rangers. So just sort of him versus Othman, like where you stand on that right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that they're both really good prospects. They're guys that you have to be excited about. You know, I think Othman showed this year that he is a big game player. He can show up in a lot a lot of different ways on the score sheet. Um, he can, you know, make big plays whenever you really need him to. Um, but the, the reason the reason that I have Gabe Perot number one is because I do think that, you know, he has top tier hockey sense, which I think is the most important trait that you can have. Um, you know, physically, they're not a ton. There's not a humongous difference. I think, you know, obviously Othman is 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 further along a year ahead in, you know, his development and different things like that. But, um, you know, ultimately, I think what what really changes the game is is that Gabe Perot is, is such an elite thinker. And, and, you know, the, the thing is, is that he's not as physically developed. So, you, I mean, you, you've stood next to him. You can see that there is all, there is room to grow. There's room to grow. So I think the ceiling is a little bit higher on Gabe Pro. I think he has a better opportunity to be a top of the lineup player than Brennan Offman does not by much, but by, mm-hmm. you know, but I do think that he is um, the kind of guy that you, you want an elite setup, man, you, and, and maybe, 
he's setting up Othman. I mean, Othman's got such a great release himself, you know, that'd be, that'd be a lot of fun to watch, but you know, I do think that, you know, to me, that separating factor, the hockey sense of the passing ability, you know, I, I think he just, he knows how to pick apart defenses in a way that I don't think many players his age do. I mean, he was doing it to college teams. He was doing it to, you know, very structured USHL teams. And he was really doing it against his own age group where they didn't have an answer for him. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I think that those two are close, you know, do I think either of them are, you know, top, top of the tier, you know, like, high above, you know, top tier prospects in the NHL relative to other players out there. No, but I think that they're probably in that second kind of, you know, that next wave of players that I wouldn't call them, um, you know, locks to be stars, but I do believe very strongly that they're both going to be impact players at the NHL level. Um, And, you know, I think that they're very similar in terms of tier. And I think it's kind of splitting hairs between the two of them, but just because of, you know, the way that, that I've seen Gabe Perot develop and mature over the last two years, I mean, I think the sky is is the limit for him as as long as he continues to get stronger, continues to develop his lower body, get a little bit more explosive, get some good straight line speed going. Um, I think he's got a he's got a real chance to be something special. Definitely two interesting guys to watch, but with Perot going to marinate for a little while. He told me this week that his hope is to spend two years in college yeah. and develop there. And then maybe after his sophomore season is when he might consider signing. Whereas Offman is obviously trying to make the team right now. I think it's likely he starts in the AHL, but he's turning pro and, and he's obviously a little further advanced right now. Now, next guy they pick, Drew Fortescue. Another guy from the NTDP, so I'm sure you're very familiar with his game, having seen him with the program. Rangers move up one spot to get him. He's a defenseman that has some tools. You know, he's like six foot one. He's not massive, but he's got decent size. Seems to move pretty well out there. The offensive game, though, definitely needs some refining. So, So what do you see when you view a kid like that as a third round pick? Yeah, you know, I I mean, I think you're you're definitely betting on the athletic toolkit more than I think what we saw this season. Um, you know, I think that Drew Fortescue has definite athleticism, good defensive sense, you know, really solid mobility. Um, he's able to get in front of guys, but he, you know, he didn't score his first goal of the season until the world under 18 championship this year. Um, you know, he, he, you look at the defenseman numbers on that team and you say, well, didn't you get some shifts with Will Smith and Gabe Perot? Could you pick up some straight points? Like he didn't have a hugely productive season. Um, when you take all competitions into account, I believe it's 26 points. Um, and so when you have a player like that, you say, okay, well, is that offense ever going to come? And if it doesn't, what is he, what, where does he fit in? And, you know, I, I think at this point you're looking at a guy that's potentially like a number six defenseman. Um, you know, he's got he'll be a stopper more than, you know, an offensive guy. The thing is, is that he's got time. He'll probably be at least a three year college guy, if not a four year college guy at Boston College. Um, he's going to have an opportunity to play with those guys, you know, playing with Gabe Perot again. Um, you know, I just like he's not the kind of prospect that you get super excited about. You just hope that there's that 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 with the base that that he's set, he clearly has hockey sense because he defends well, he angles well, he's you know he jumps into plays, he can cut down uh, guys quickly. But at the modern NHL, you have to be an exceptional puck mover. I don't think he's that. Um, I think he's adequate at best. Um, you know, but 
it was interesting. Like, and actually that his pick was, was one of the ones that we talked about after the draft, with just like among other people about moving up, you know, one spot, spending an asset, you know, an additional asset to move up one spot. Um, they must've been convinced that the other team was taking Fortescue. So, but, <laughs> but you know, like that's, that's the interesting thing, or that at least they, they, maybe they bluffed, but you know, obviously there's some connections there. You know, I think that the, that there's the local ties. There's also, you know, the jury connection and there's, you know, there's a number of things that, that come into play and that familiarity can be a good thing. I mean, sometimes it can be a bad thing. Sometimes it can be, well, we're, we're reaching on a guy that, that we know, uh, but also there's a little bit of trust there. There's a little bit of like knowledge of the full foundation of the player and, and how they, how they've matured and how they've grown. Um, so, you know, I think he's going to be going, Greg Brown, the head coach at Boston college, you know, is a guy that is going to help is going to help him. You know, he's a coach coach with the Rangers. He's been, he's been at the NHL level, um, development wise, he's in a really great situation. And so you just kind of hope that that works out for him. You know, like it's, it's, I would say he's a low, you know, lower upside because of the offensive ceiling doesn't seem very high, but he still has the package to make it in the NHL because he thinks the game at a high enough level and he defends well enough. I mentioned this in my story yesterday with all the takeaways and stuff from development camp. As far as being comfortable with the puck on your stick and, and, and moving with it and that sort of thing. I actually thought Rasmus Larson, the fifth round pick for the Rangers looked a little more comfortable in that setting at development camp, a little bit of a bigger guy mobile. There were some tools to like with that pick as well. I thought, but just, I guess quickly that they could take Larson, a defenseman in the fifth round. They take Dylan uh, rubric and Ty Henricks, a couple of really big forwards Massive. in the, yeah. in the sixth round. Yeah. Henrik's another guy, actually, I-, I thought looked pretty good at development camp. He got a couple goals in that scrimmage. He said afterwards, openly skating is something that I really need to work on. I think that's probably what held him back as far as his prospect status. But there's some skill there, and, and that dude plays some pretty thundering hits, too. So any of those three late picks? I mean, I don't know if you had a chance to watch much of any of them. Any Anything about any of those guys interest you at all? Yeah, you know, I think Henrik's is interesting. I certainly saw him in the USHL some this year. I think he's going back to the USHL for another year, maybe even uh, I think he's got, you know, a couple of years of eligibility to go back. And that's when when you have a guy that needs to develop the skating, you know, I think that's a good thing. He's committed to Western Michigan, which has been a place where NHL players continue to develop. Pat, uh, um, why, why I've been doing this so often where I just like blank. I did this to about Vitaly Kravtsov, which I'm sure Rangers fans would prefer that I forget his <laughs> name. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know, the, 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 the Western Michigan foundation that they have, like, you know, what they've done with their players and what they've done with, um, you know, developing players for both the NHL. They've had a lot of undrafted guys come in and get contracts. I think that's a great place for a player like Ty Henricks who needs to learn, you know, all the aspects of the game. He needs to increase his, his scoring ability. I mean, the thing that's important to remember about him is this season was his first year of junior hockey. Before that, he had been playing, you know, triple A hockey, you know, and, and the jump from that to junior is huge. Like it really is a big one. So he, you know, he also got traded over the course of the season as well. And so now with Muskegon, he's going to have an opportunity to play a bigger role. He's going to have an opportunity to do more things and and to develop, but the skate, the bigger players often take longer to get to the NHL. 
And it is often because there is certain things that have to catch up. They either grew really fast, you know, and, and, and now the sudden they're just trying to figure out how to use this new body that they have. But a player like him, the skating component has to come with the size. If you can't skate, you can't play. Um, and so that's going to be his challenge over the next couple of years. That's going to be the challenge of, you know, the development people uh, in, in in New York as well. That's something that they can work on him, get him the right in, in the right places. But when you take late round bets and you bet on a player with that size, I have zero problem with that because if he hits, now you've got a big heavy forward that can play, you know, down your lineup. And then you got an NHL player out of a sixth round pick. So I think that that's probably, you know, those kinds of bets, him and Rubrek as well. I mean, another massive body, you know, just a guy that you, you say, if these guys hit, we've got something there. Um, the thing is, is that, you know, you're using those picks with the full knowledge that these are players with significant flaws in their game um, and and that there's a lot to overcome for them to ultimately be an NHL pl- prospect. But if you spent a sixth round draft pick to make that bet, that's one you're always willing to do because most sixth round picks are not going to make it. That's just the, the way it works out. That's the probability of it. But those are bets that are worth taking, especially if you can, you know, now that we see the NHL continues to need some of those heavy forwards. Yeah. And you know what? The Rangers like taking those bets on the bigger guys in the later rounds. And actually one who stood out to me at development camp, and I think has made a lot of strides in the last couple of years is Yaro Schmelosh. It looks like mm. Chemlar. I asked him about this. I asked about this this week. Apparently it's pronounced Schmelosh. It looks like okay. Chemlar. But yeah, uh, we've yeah, I thought it was Melar, and uh, yeah, but I yeah, the the R in the Czech language and and Slovakian, it's just this, it's this S sound, and I'm I'm baffled by it. But yes, that is a massive player with a lot of upside as, as well. Yeah, so the Rangers like taking those kind of bets, and that that's clearly the strategy they took here. All right, Chris. Well, thank you so much. We've taken up enough of your time. This is super informative, super helpful. I really, really appreciate it. Make sure to check out his work at flowhockey.tv and go get some rest, my friend. You earned it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Great to be with you. Okay. Thank you again to Chris. Chris is awesome. Love talking about prospects with him, and I definitely bother him. I'd say at least a handful of times every year to ask him questions, whether it's draft related or prospect related. Great resource, really good dude, and very fun conversation there with him. So we spoke a lot about Perot and some of the other draft class guys, but I have a feeling we're going to talk a little bit more about what I saw at development camp, which leads us right into our first question, which comes from Bleeds Blue, who wrote, who impressed you at prospect development camp? It seemed like Adam Sakura played well. Is that right? Who else? Who was underwhelming? So first of all, I would encourage everybody, if you haven't had a chance yet, go to loha.com slash sports slash rangers. I completely emptied my notebook as far as everything that I observed and wrote down and, and took mental notes on during the four days of development camp. I think I wrote about a dozen different prospects in this story, probably one of the longest stories I've written this summer. So definitely, if you're really into this prospect stuff and you want to find out more about what I thought of all these guys this past week, go and check that story out. But I certainly can do some discussion on it here. 
Sakura for sure played well. As far as the scrimmage went, I don't think he had any points in that scrimmage that we watched on Wednesday, but every single shift, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, you notice this guy. I mean, he does something on every shift where you're just like, wow, that guy seems to be moving faster than everybody else. He just plays like his hair is on fire. I mean, every puck that ended up behind the net, whether it was a dump or a loose puck for some other reason, he was the first guy in there with his nose over the puck. Absolutely fearless, absolutely speedy, and absolutely has no qualms about jumping in there. So when it came to recovering pucks in those kind of situations, always one of the first guys in there. When it came to a forechecking situation and putting pressure on the other team and making it difficult for them to advance up the ice, Socorro was always the first guy in there and causing turnovers and just making life difficult on the other team. And he also cracks me up sometimes with the way that he just throws his body into these high danger areas. I mean, getting to the net, nobody does it as far as I saw at this prospect camp more consistently than him. And sometimes he's not the biggest guy. You know, he throws his body in there recklessly and he ends up falling down. I think honing that aggressiveness and making sure that you don't overdo it, making sure you don't overskate yourself into mistakes, making sure you're being smart about the choices that you're making. That's something that I think will continue to evolve with him. But for the most part, he's really effective in those situations. So I just think as far as putting pressure on the opponent and all the things that you know that coaches love to see these players do, hunting for tips, getting to the net, being physical, tracking loose pucks, forechecking, backchecking, all that kind of stuff, Sakura checks all of those boxes. This guy, as I wrote in my story, has the type of third-line player that you don't want to play against written all over him. He is a pest to play against, and that was evident throughout camp. He's really the kind of guy that does not have to score or put up points to make an impact on the game, and I think that that's a really encouraging sign for the Rangers, and I absolutely view him as a guy that is going to be working his way into the mix for their bottom six in the next year or two. And it does not hurt his case. In fact, it very much enhances his case that he probably was the best skater at this camp too. I know on the first day of camp, they were doing the timing on the straight line skating and they have all this testing that they do on ice. You don't see a puck at all on the first day. It's all about skating and testing and timing and those sort of things. He had the fastest straight line time of any guy in this camp. So he's got some blazing speed to go along with that fearlessness that he plays with. So a, a really exciting prospect from that standpoint. This isn't going to be a guy who I think puts up a ton of points. This isn't going to be a guy who I think plays in your top six, but he gives the Rangers a different element. He gives them speed. He gives them forecheck. He gives them defense, and he gives them grit. He gives them all of those elements that I think they want to infuse their team with more in the coming years. And this is a guy who is now turning pro. He's set to go and play, it sounds like, for Hartford this coming season. I think you're probably going to give him a year to marinate. I believe he might not even be 19 years old yet, or he's about to turn 19, or he just did turn 19. Let me look this up really quickly while I'm talking. But 
still a very, very young player. I don't think that you want to rush him. And as I said, because of the complete throwing caution to the wind style that he plays with, I think you got to make sure that he's not going to get overly penalized and he's going to be smart with a lot of his decision making. So that's certainly something I'm sure they're working on with him. And yeah, I'm looking it up now. He's 18. He'll turn 19 on September 7th. So I think asking him to play an NHL role this year is probably asking a lot, but we'll see how he performs in Hartford. Best case scenario, maybe later on in the season, he gets a little bit of a taste or a little bit of a look. And I certainly think by next season, if he has a full AHL season under his belt, this is a guy that can compete for a spot in the lineup. So Sakura definitely impressed me. I touched a little bit on uh, Othman and Perot with Chris Peters. Those are clearly the two highest profile prospects in this system now. I think a lot of eyes were on them at development camp. Honestly, neither one of them in that scrimmage setting really popped. I think for Othman, he has nothing to prove in this setting. For him, it's all going to be about NHL camp and does he look like he's ready? He talked a lot. I spoke to him for a while after the scrimmage on Wednesday about this being the first summer where he can fully prepare himself as a pro. He took a little time off, which he's barely had in the last couple of years when you think about his schedule between juniors and world juniors and bouncing back and forth and doing NHL camp with the Rangers and all that. So has not had much of a break. He gave himself one this past month, but he said now, beginning with this development camp, it's all about training and working out, definitely trying to continue to add muscle to his frame. He definitely looks a little thicker to me. The Rangers have him listed around 180 now. I think he's hoping he'll show up to camp maybe at like 185, 190. You know, he's right about six foot tall, so not a super tall guy, but physically he's maturing. We know he plays with a certain level of tenacity and is not afraid to throw his body around and and throw some checks and that sort of thing. And we know there's plenty of skill in the tank. He did show off that left-handed wrist shot a few times during camp. I would pretty clearly say he had the best shot of any prospect in this camp, but I don't think he had a ton to prove here. Didn't really pop to me a lot in the scrimmage. And same thing with Perot. I think talking to Perot at the end of camp, he was saying, you know, he has a lot of work to do as far as physically maturing and working out and adding muscle. And I think this experience went to show that for him. Although you did in some of the drills that they were doing, see what kind of passer I think he can be. So I I wouldn't say either one of those guys jumped off the page for me. Perot, there's still a lot of development there. And Othman, I guess, sort of has bigger fish to fry at this point looking ahead to NHL camp. He did tell me that he plans on spending some time here potentially in the summer, you know, July, August, maybe a couple weeks when a lot of the NHL guys are hanging around to skate with them and prepare himself that way, which I think would be a wise decision. But as I wrote, I still think the likely path for him is going to Hartford, getting some time there. This is going to be his first real professional time. He has been playing junior the last couple of years because of that sort of silly age limit that they have where if you're under 20 years old, it's either Canadian Junior Leagues or NHL. Now he's finally over 20 and eligible to play in the AHL, and I certainly think that will be the path for him. Very possible, though, if he plays well, you'll see him in the NHL at some point this season. I think all those free agent signings that we just talked about with the Rangers, that buys them some time. Sort of blocks Othman and Will Cooley for now. But I think that if those guys play well in the AHL, 
they could position themselves as sort of being maybe the first call up, especially if there's an opening in the top nine. So that's where it's at with those guys. Cooley and a lot of the other guys who spent a full season with Hartford last year were not in development camp. I think once you've had a full professional season, the Rangers sort of view it as you've graduated past the stage where you're at development camp. So I didn't see Will Cooley, didn't see Dylan Garan, didn't see Zach Jones, Matthew Roberts, and some of those more advanced prospects. But you did see some guys that I think are likely to play with Hartford this year. I mentioned Othman. I mentioned Sakura. Brett Berard is a guy who I'm intrigued by as well. This guy was a fifth-round pick back in 2020. Spent three years at Providence. I think he's another guy where the, the skill set is a little similar to Sakura. Undersized winger. Really has to rely on speed and hustle and playing the game hard to be effective. But he's shown that he can do that. He's done that at World Juniors for Team USA, and he's done that at Providence. And I do think in Berard's case where he might have a, a little less athleticism, a little less speed, although he's definitely a pretty good skater than Sakura, and maybe not the defensive player that Sakura is, and maybe not as reckless about throwing his body in front of the net in those kind of situations. Berard at this stage, I think, has a little more skill in the tank than Adam Sakura. So an interesting prospect, another guy who I think would profile maybe as an eventual third liner, and now he's getting ready to play his first pro season and will certainly start with Hartford and see how he progresses from there. So Berard's a guy who has some tools to like as well. And the fourth guy that was at this camp that I think is getting ready to, to potentially play for Hartford this season is Ryder Korzak. But, you know, you talk about who owned, underwhelmed. I wouldn't say that he underwhelmed. I definitely think there's some skill there and some intriguing stuff. This is a guy who's been highly productive in the WHL. Definitely got good hands. Definitely has some, some good skill. But he's a little bit of a tweener to me because he's undersized. I don't think that this is a guy whose skill level is enough to compensate for that and make him look like a potential top sixer in the NHL. But he was pretty open about struggling with the physicality and the toughness that he saw when he got a five-game stint in the AHL last season. And so for those reasons, because I don't know if he's the strongest, biggest, toughest prospect I wonder about, could this guy play in a bottom six for you? I don't know. I think he's a little bit of a tweener. I think this is a really important season for him if he's going to get a look with Hartford because he's going to have to pop soon if you're going to really look at him as a legitimate NHL option. I would certainly put him behind Berard and Sakura as far as you know what we're looking at for prospect rankings and what we're looking at as likelihood of making the NHL. But maybe he'll prove us wrong again. Highly productive junior player. It's just, you know, if you're not like a really, really high level skill player, you know, like a Matt Zuccarello or someone like that who's able to overcome their lack of size and strength, then what is the real path for him here? So Korzak is a guy who I'm kind of interested to see where it goes from this point forward. You know, a couple other guys that I could mention, Bryce McConnell Barker, I think has risen now to where... This might not be saying a whole lot because the Rangers don't have a ton of centers in their prospect pool right now, but I think McConnell Barker has definitely risen and to me, in my mind, is now the number one center prospect in the organization. Had a really good season in the OHL last year with the Sioux Greyhounds. Also, by the way, was the captain of that team 
at a young age. So it shows you there's some leadership qualities there as well. His team wasn't very good, but he was well over a point per game, played in all situations, power play, penalty kill, top line, all that kind of stuff. Solid face-off guy, pretty mobile, and I think is getting better in the skating department. I still wouldn't call him a high-end skater, but I think he's getting better in that department for a big guy. He's like six foot two, six foot three. So McConnell Barker, I think, has positioned himself now where he looks like a guy that has a real shot to play in the NHL someday. He's in that position now where Othman was last year, where he's not old enough to be eligible for the AHL, so he's almost certainly going back to the OHL next season. But that's not the worst thing for him. He's not as far advanced, I think, especially as far as his offensive production, where Othman was the previous year. So this would be a good development year for him. I think there are areas he can continue to strive to get better, especially when you look at the skating. But a prospect who's made some really, really encouraging strides and and I think could carve out a potential future in the NHL if he continues along this trajectory. Those are probably some of the, you know, more well-known prospects, I think, that were at this camp. I I touched on it a little bit with Chris this year's draft class. I thought Rasmus Larson, the fifth-round pick from this year, there's some tools to like there, for sure. You know, looks good with the puck on his stick. Big guy, six foot three, 200 pounds. Pretty mobile. I thought skated pretty well. So there's some stuff to work with there as far as Larson is concerned. And there's also some stuff to work with with Hendricks. You just heard Chris Peters talk about it a bit, but definitely a big physical kid and definitely a guy who has a little skill in the tank. It's just all going to come down to skating. Does he skate well enough to become an NHL player? And that's a real question mark. And I think that's probably the main reason that he dropped into the sixth round in the draft. But he had himself a pretty good camp. I think he's a guy that probably opened some eyes at this camp and now we'll be keeping an eye on as he goes back to the USHL this coming season. So that's a handful of the prospects, I would say, that you know either jumped out to me or I was watching closely at this development camp. And there are some intriguing names in there. I, I guess the last one I should mention is, is Shmelash, Yaroslav Shmelash. I hope I'm saying that right. It looks like Chemlar. This guy, I think, is also moving up as far as how the Rangers prospects are regarded six foot four big kid but the skill gets better every year I think his hockey sense and his awareness of how to use that size to his advantage is getting better every year and as we talk about with all these guys with big size it's about improving the skating but it does look like it's improved to me and he was really effective for the Czech Republic in the world juniors last year when they took silver in that tournament and had a pretty solid freshman season with Providence He's going back there for a sophomore season. So Schmelosh is a guy that I think in a lot of people's minds is on the rise as well. So those are a handful of the prospects that I would say sort of jumped out to me for one reason or another at this development camp. Oh, last thing I'll just mention before we move on. My prospect rankings, as we do every year, top 10 in the organization are going to be coming out in August. So be ready for that too. I'm putting a lot of legwork in now. Talked to a lot of those prospects this week. Watched a lot of those guys this week. Polling different scouts and experts and people in the organization about how they view these prospects. And we will have that new top 10 list coming out later on this summer. All right, let's get to our next question, which comes from Justin Starr, who wrote, we need to cut to the chase, Vince. 
The Vladdy situation is strange. What is your gut feeling on it? Clearly, the Rangers would need to clear cap space if a reunion was ever to happen. It's amazing to me how many questions we got about Tarasenko this week. I get it because he's still lingering out there as an unsigned free agent, and he just fired his previous agent, switched to the Pat Brisson group, and Brisson, as some of you may know, is known for maybe getting some of the biggest deals out there, definitely one of the most high-profile agents out there. I mean, listen, I, I get the curiosity. Tarasenko is a guy that in an ideal world you would love to have back if you're the Rangers, but to me, I don't see any way that this is happening. This is a guy who my understanding is looking for a contract five, six plus million dollars a season. There's just simply no way the Rangers are going to be able to do that. We just talked about how the Rangers weren't able to give anybody more than 825000 Even the guys that were making a million or a million and a half were a little too rich for the Rangers and where they stand in their salary cap situation now. So, I don't know how any of you think that Tarasenko is a realistic possibility for the Rangers. I'm sure he would have interest in coming back if the money was right. I'm sure the Rangers would have interest in having him back because he was a pretty good fit for them. But I think everybody in the situation is well aware that the Rangers do not have the cap space to make it happen. And if they wanted to sign him, well, they would have had to do something like buy out Barclay Goudreau when they had the opportunity to do so last week. Now, we know that that window has passed. And even when the second window comes up, a lot of people are asking me this because Brandon Scanlon, who's a defenseman prospect for the Rangers, he signed up for arbitration, which means the Rangers will have a second buyout window open at some point later this summer. But the key with that second buyout window is you're only allowed to buy out players who make $4 million or more per season. Goudreau is at 3.6, so he's not eligible for that. And I firmly don't believe that any of the Rangers' other options who make above $4 million are in the conversation for potential buyouts. I don't think any of those guys who make more than $4 million are being bought out by the Rangers. So at this point, I feel fairly confident in telling you the Rangers are not buying anyone out. They had an opportunity to do it, and they took a pass on it. So I don't think they're buying anybody out to try to go get a guy like Tarasenko. And while I can't completely rule out the possibility of a trade, I also think that that market was tough, that anybody who they were talking to about potentially trading Goudreau or anyone else knew that the Rangers had their backs up against the wall and was asking for the Rangers to not only send them a player in Goudreau that they still value, but also attach an asset to him. And I don't think they were willing to do that. So at this point, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. I know there's conspiracy theories out there, but I do not see it happening. I do not think that the Rangers are going to be able to move any significant salary. And even if they were to move Goudreau's 3.6, let's say, I still don't think that that would even be enough to get Tarasenko back here. So I hate to say it, I would cross him off your list. And especially him going to Brisson, who again is an agent who's pretty notorious for trying to get the best deals for his clients. I mean, they all do to some extent, but I think this is sort of a heavy hitter in that regard. I do not think that Tarasenko is going to come back 
and play for the Rangers on a Blake Wheeler type of $800,000 a year sign. I, I do not think that that is in the cards and he's not over 35. So he's not eligible for any of those performance bonuses that we talked about. So hate to tell you guys, but I think that you might be wasting your breath a little bit worrying about this one. Patrick Kane, I also think is a long shot, but maybe a little bit less so because of the fact that I, I believe even though he's not 35 yet, I think he's turning 35 in November, he would be eligible for some of those performance bonuses. And you would also have a period of the season where you could put him on long-term injured reserve and bury that salary. I still think he's much more likely to go to a team that's willing to pay him more because even if the Rangers were to sign him, it would have to be a really low contract with maybe some performance bonuses worked in there. So if he lingers for a long time and he really wants to come back here and make it work, him, I would give you a sliver of a chance that it could happen, but still kind of unlikely. Tarasenko, I, I really don't see much of a path there at all, unfortunately. So I, I think what the Rangers went out and did by being super active with all these low-cost signings that they made last week, I think that they've pretty much laid out their roster the way that they're envisioning it. There's always a chance something could materialize on the trade front at some point this summer. I, I would never rule out that possibility, but the likelihood of them going into training camp with pretty much the roster that we see now, I think is fairly high. So that's that's where we're at on that. Sorry to dash any hopes there, but I think Tarasenko is, is not going to happen here. All right, let's get to our final question from James, who wrote, I need a lineup construction prediction. He also asked about Kane and Tarasenko. We just talked about that. I don't think they're going to end up here. I think based on the signings the Rangers just made, we could very easily envision what the lineup is going to look like right now. Now, how the pieces are going to fit, how LaViolette is going to want to arrange them, I think is a really intriguing conversation that we can have a bit right now. But I, I think that you can envision at least – in my opinion, it's going to be a 22-man roster with the 13 forwards who I think are going to make it, the seven defensemen, and the two goalies. So we'll start with the forwards. I think I could very easily see them starting with the top line of Kreider, Zabanajad, and Kako. That line, if you look at the metrics, graded out as arguably the Rangers' best line last season. Kako told me repeatedly that that was the spot where he – felt the most comfortable, where he felt like he played his best. So I think that that input is important. If you're going to listen to your young player and give him an opportunity to flourish, I think playing him in that spot makes a lot of sense. And then that would leave you with a second line that you know is going to have Artemi Panarin. I also believe is very likely to have Blake Wheeler. I think Wheeler is a guy that they signed because they believe he can play in the top six. They believe that he can mesh with some of their high-skilled players and be productive in that kind of a role. The question for me more so is who would be the center there? And obviously, Vincent Trocek is the higher-paid guy. They used him as their second-line center for pretty much all of last season. But I do wonder if the Rangers are going to entertain the idea of Philip Heedle in that spot. And I'll give you a couple reasons why. I've told you, I think, a lot in the last year that I'm intrigued by the possibility of Heedle playing with Panarin, number one, because of the speed element. And I think Heedle is a guy that more so than any other center on this roster can kind of push the pace. 
Mika can obviously do it too. We know Mika works his butt off out there. But Hedl, I think, is arguably the fastest skater on this roster, certainly one of the fastest skaters on this roster. So I think the speed element and being able to push the pace would be important there. And he's also a shoot-first player. The Rangers don't have a ton of those on this roster. But Hedl is a guy that loves to shoot the puck, and we know Panarin's a guy that loves to pass the puck. So I am curious about seeing those two guys get an extended look together. Hedl's also an offensive center above all else. His defense has improved in some ways. There's still a long way to go there, but he profiles as a top six guy. He had a really good season last year with pretty much no power play time and still scored, I think, 22 goals. So you would think if you move him up in the lineup, that number can grow even more. And so for me on paper, I wonder about a second line that might look like Panarin, Hedl, and Wheeler. And what that would leave you with for the bottom six, and we've talked about this before, LaViolette really likes to have that matchup line. For the third line, I wonder about Trocek, who I think profiles as the most effective center the Rangers could have in that matchup line. Really good on faceoffs, a solid defensive player, a shifty player who I think can play with a pretty good pace. And You know, it got better over the course of the season with him and Panarin. Definitely they were better in the second half than they were in the first. But it didn't click to the level where you're thinking, oh, those guys have to play together. I really do wonder if Trocek might center this matchup checking line, whatever you want to call it. And I also feel like Barclay Goudreau is a guy that the Rangers are going to want to utilize in that type of a role. That's where he was most effective with Tampa Bay when he played on that third line that was such a driving force for them when they won back-to-back cups. So I think I could very easily see a line that has Trocek and Goudreau, and it's a line that you're going to throw out there in a lot of defensive situations, in a lot of key face-off situations, and that type of a thing. Remember, Trocek was by far the best face-off guy on this roster last season. The left-wing spot there is the interesting one. Because obviously Alexi Lafreniere is going to play in your top nine somewhere. I don't know if he really is best suited on that line in that spot. But he almost kind of lands there by default. Could you consider maybe switching him with a Kreider and playing Kreider in that spot? It's possible. I think it's certainly worth discussing. But I also feel like the likelihood, at least to begin, is having Kreider stay with Zabanajad, which again, pretty much by default, puts Lafreniere on the third line. It's a debate you can have, and who knows, maybe LaViolette sees it differently. I think with a new coach coming in, there's a lot of intrigue and curiosity about how he sees things playing out. I did run into him in the facility a couple of times this week. He was at development camp, but... Didn't quite dive in on those questions yet. We'll get to those at the end of the summer once training camp is coming in and we're spending every single day asking him questions. Trust me, there's a lot of stuff I want to ask him about and pick his brain about. And I think it's still sort of open to interpretation how he views this lineup. But I do think that he's going to want a a matchup defensive line or at least a line that has more of those elements to it. And I could see Trocek and Goudreau certainly being a part of that. And then the left winger there, I think, has got to be one of Lafreniere or Kreider sort of open to debate who it might be. But I think those are your top nine forwards almost undoubtedly. Maybe Goudreau 
shifts down to the fourth line, but I think they're going to have him on the third line if I was placing a bet today. And what does that leave you with for the fourth line? Well, Benito is there. I think Pitlick is almost certainly there. And Jimmy Vesey, let's not forget about him. Maybe Vesey is a guy that you could see, you know, on that third line type of a role because he's really good defensively, really responsible, great hockey sense kind of a player, just a smart, headsy, responsible player. But I also think that VC can play on your fourth line very easily and give a little bit of a scoring punch to that fourth line. So I could very easily see a fourth line that has VC on the left, Benino in the middle, and Pitlick on the right. To me, those 12 forwards, I think, are the favorites to be in the lineup on opening night. What does that mean for Othman and Cooley? Well, it means that they're probably going to the AHL. I doubt they're going to keep either one of those guys on the roster as a 13th forward. I think it's more likely going to be a guy like Riley Nash or, you know, Johnny Brodzinski or Alex Belize, one of these guys that they've sort of signed as depth forwards. And then I think Offman and Cooley, you let them cook in Hartford. And if there's an injury to anybody in those top 12, then I think those could, if they're playing well, at least maybe be one of the first guys called up. I think Cooley is probably a little bit ahead of Othman just because he played a full AHL season. Chris Knobloch told me he thought he was their most improved player or one of their most improved players over the course of the AHL season. So I think Cooley definitely would be one of the first call-ups if needed. But I think because of these signings, because of the Beninos and the Pitlicks that they got, that sort of makes his path to crack the lineup on opening night a little more difficult. As for the defenseman, that's easy. You're going to have your top four, which is going to be Fox, Lindgren, Truba, Miller, assuming they get the deal done with Miller. I think you're probably going to see the pairs remain the same, but maybe Laviolette has other ideas. I guess we'll find out. And then I think your bottom pair is Gustafson and Schneider with Jones making the roster because they're not going to want to place him on waivers like we touched on in the first segment. And you know who the goalies are, Igor and Quick. So that is how I'm envisioning the lineup right now. I think there's not a whole lot of competition as far as roster spots going into training camp. There's a little bit on the forward side of things, especially when it comes to the 13th forward and maybe how the lineup is arranged. But I think 12 forward spots are pretty much set right now. I think those 12 that we talked about, those guys, barring something completely unforeseen, whether it's injury or trade or something like that, those 12 guys are going to make this lineup or make this roster and probably be in the lineup. Got a lot more time to talk about that though. We got a whole summer ahead of us. So with that, this has been a really long episode, but we had so much to go over. Free agency, development camp, draft. We hit on it all. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It was jam packed with what I hope was a lot of good stuff. I will be back next week. I'm planning to have a guest who's going to help us maybe get to know one or two of these free agents a little bit better. I certainly want to get into that stuff more in the coming weeks, but until then, I'm going to get moving. It's been a really busy couple weeks between draft, free agency, and then development camp, but a lot of good stuff. It's been fun. Hope you guys have enjoyed all the coverage. I will get going for now, but I promise you I will be back next week. Until then, take care, be well, and I will talk to you soon.